Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, uh, the 21st of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. It's almost three years since uh, the people of uh, the United Kingdom voted to leave uh, the European Union in a referendum in June 2016. Despite Theresa May's continued pledge to leave on the 29th of March, the Prime Minister wrote to the President of the European Council yesterday saying she didn't want to leave on the 29th and asked if there could be an extension to the Article 50 process. Donald Tusk said yes, probably, but he told her where to go. Go back to the House of Commons and get the approval of MPs for a Brexit deal and then a short extension might be possible, he said. Mrs May then went on television and said it is high time we made a decision. So far, Parliament has done everything possible to avoid making a decision. All MPs have been willing to say is what they do not want, she said. Just at the time that Theresa May needs MPs to support her, she blames them for the problem. Smart Day. Well, we leave that to MPs to decide themselves. Karen Coleman is editor with Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliaments in Strasbourg and Brussels. She's on the line. Good morning to you, Karen, and thanks for joining us here this morning. There's 28 leaders in Brussels today. Mrs. May is to appeal to the other 27 leaders for this extension. But the big question, I suppose, is what will happen in eight days from now? Will the UK be looking at an extension? period in the EU or is it looking at crashing out? Well, uh, good morning, Michael. And really hard to tell. I mean, every time there is a new development uh, that happens in the House of Commons, there is just yet another. It's followed by another jaw-dropping catastrophe, really. I mean, it was really amazing what Theresa May came out with last night, blaming MPs and the reaction from her own backbenchers, from former Conservative um, uh, ministers and from the Labour opposition MPs has been quite emphatic. People describing it as toxic, irresponsible, um, lowbrow, incendiary. And so now she's trying to appeal for an extension of Article 50 to the end of June. And that's what she requested from Donald Tusk, European Council President, yesterday in her letter. Now the EU27 have got to decide whether they will grant her a short extension or whether they're going to consider something different. For the moment, Donald Tusk was talking about yesterday about a short extension. And the difficulty here, Michael, is mm. whether they're going to extend to June 30th as she has requested, but then what do you do if the UK still has not passed the withdrawal agreement and now we enter the time of European elections, which start on the 23rd of May? And this poses a huge legal issue for the EU27 because there's a big issue if the UK says, okay, we won't participate in the EU elections, we'll definitely get the withdrawal agreement passed, 
And then we pass the dates of the EU elections. They haven't participated, but they still fail to pass the withdrawal agreement. Um, and I think then, you you know, we really face the possibility that they will just have to crash out of the EU without any further extensions. Because what do you do if they haven't participated in the EU elections and then they ask for another extension? It could finish today, couldn't it? Uh, because there's the prospect that this request or this plea, or as some of uh, the British media are putting it, when Mrs May goes to Europe and begs for an extension, uh, that it'll be rejected. There's talk that France, Spain, Belgium and possibly Italy will veto it. I, I don't see that happening, Michael, in the short term, because I think no matter how much these EU leaders and, and so many others within the EU, including obviously many Irish people, are frustrated with what is going on in the UK, to actually say they're not going to grant any extension and allow a hard Brexit to go ahead by next Friday, I think would be a very chaotic decision to take. Um, So I would imagine, and again, Mm. you know, it may happen that they'll say to her, no, we're not going to uh, grant you any further extension. I would say that they're going to say to her, we will grant you a short extension, but you have to decide whether or not you're going to participate in the EU elections. Now, May said last night, very emphatically, she was not going to countenance a further extension beyond June 30th, um, and that she did not want to, to take the UK into the EU elections. So I would have thought as long as she remains Prime Minister, the chances of her agreeing to participate in EU elections by April 11th, because she has to, the UK has to make that decision by April the 11th, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I mean, there are calls now growing in, in London for her resignation, and there is a possibility perhaps that that will happen, but then they have to elect a new leader in uh, the UK if that takes place, and then who will that be, and, and what will there be the decision of that uh, prime minister. So it's all really up in the air. But I don't, I don't foresee the EU 27 saying over the next two days, we're not going to extend Article 50. Let them leave next Friday. Mm. But it is possible they will say that it has to be a longer extension, an extension of 21 months or, or, or longer so that we can get past the European elections. Well, I mean, the easiest thing, I suppose, would, would have been for the UK to put its hands up, for Theresa May to admit that she cannot get a deal through. It's going to be too difficult to get another deal through within the next eight weeks or so. And that the best thing to do would be to completely delay the Brexit process, participate in the EU elections, and over the course, she could even have said over nine months, over the course of the next nine months, we will really work on a withdrawal agreement that will actually be passed by the House of Commons. And at that stage, we'll pull our MEPs out of the Parliament. We will remove ourselves then from the EU by the set, a a new delayed exit date. But she has not said that. She has said emphatically she's not going to take the UK into the EU elections. She's not going to ask for a further extension. So, I mean, if the EU elections weren't coming up in May, from the 23rd to 27th or so of May, then the EU27 could perhaps put up with this for a bit Mm. longer. But there are huge legal ramifications if the UK does not participate in the EU elections 
And it still doesn't agree on a withdrawal agreement because then it brings into question the legality of any laws that are undertaken by the European Parliament. And remember, the new Parliament, which uh, will, will take place, will sit for the first time in early July. It decides on, what, on who the new EU commissioners will be. I mean, it, it mm. passes. It has to approve the commissioners that have been put forward and it has to agree on new legislation. So if the UK doesn't participate in that process then how legitimate will those parliamentary proceedings be? So I think the EU27 are going to have to, they're probably going to say, we'll give you a short extension, but you have to tell us by April 11th whether you're going to take part in those EU elections or not. If you're not, then you have to be out by the 22nd or of May or whatever. You're, you're going to have to leave by a certain date. Or you tell us you're going to take part in the EU elections and then we'll give you a longer extension. But, I mean, the EU can tell them these things, but the UK has then got to make the decision as to whether or not they will participate in those EU elections or not. And if they're not going to participate in the EU elections, and if they don't pass a withdrawal agreement by June 30th, then I think the likelihood of a hard Brexit is much stongger. Do you believe there'll be a requirement to, to get a House of Commons endorsement for a, a deal that if she's to get this extension that she'll be obligated to return and be able to say that there is the support of the House or more support in the House because as things stand she has the same old deal to put to MPs a, a third time. She'll hope to do that probably on Tuesday of next week but that may not be possible because of the ruling of uh, the Speaker of the House and even if it is uh, why would she get the support at this stage of the majority of MPs? Well there's some um, suggestions from legal, certain legal quarters in the UK that if she gets this so-called Strasbourg Agreement wrapped up in the withdrawal agreement. So these were the tweaks mm. that were given in Strasbourg during the last European uh, Parliament plenary session in Strasbourg, in which Jean Claude Juncker um, was giving additional reassurances to the backstop. I think then she could claim that there are change, there are enough changes to the withdrawal agreement to, let's say, call it a different mm. agreement, or it's changed to the one that was twice already put to the House of Commons, in which case Burko could then probably say, OK, it is a new agreement. You can go ahead and put that to MPs. The grounds, we, the grounds for the proposal, I suppose, Karen, will have changed in that sense. Exactly. And mm. therefore, she gets around the fact that she's putting the same agreement to MPs twice. Or, there are enough changes. Or it may not, because uh, the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, has said yes. this morning he doesn't know if it will be possible to bring it back to the House. Exactly. And therefore, it's going to probably come down to legal interpretation as to whether or not those additional changes merit it enough to be called a changed agreement. That it's changed enough for Burko to say, yes, you can now put this to the House of Commons for a third time. And let's say that is the scenario next week that's going to happen. Then, you know, do the, the hard Brexiteers and the DUP, um, do they now say to themselves, 
we're going to get, we'll say let's look at it from a hard Brexiteer point of view, because what they don't want is a long extension to Article 50, because that raises multiple scenarios. Then you really could have a new election in the UK. You will definitely probably have a new prime minister um, and you could potentially have a referendum. Anything could happen, including a vote going back to the UK and the UK this time rejecting Brexit. Or they mm. could stay, say they could say. So the, the hard Brexiteers won't want that. And they may well then, for those who oppose this deal, maybe there'll be enough of them to come around to say, let's just get this thing through and let's get on with getting out of the EU. So there is a possibility mm. that a, another withdrawal agreement could be passed next week. But as we've seen over the last number of months, anything is possible. It could also be rejected. And it's possible that there could be a third vote on Tuesday, let's say, which would reduce the margin sufficiently to call for a fourth vote, which could take place on Thursday, the day before the 29th of March, D-Day, B-Day, Brexit Day, as the case may be. And if that fails, uh, there is always uh, this other option that they could revoke Article 50 and call the whole thing off. That, I think, is going to be very unlikely at the moment because you would then have to have really... May, for May to revoke Article 50, and she's entitled to do that, there was that ruling in Strasbourg that, innate, that says the UK can revoke Article 50 unilaterally, but for that to happen, Theresa May and the Cabinet and the government would have to feel that the majority of, of themselves and the majority of the House is in favour of that and that the majority of the British people are in favour of that. And we are seeing no signs of that, certainly not within the Cabinet. There are still plenty of hardcore Brexiteers who want to take the, e- the UK out of the EU. And you see it when you watch British television and the reports of people protesting still to remain in the EU, but there are plenty who want out of the EU as well. So I don't get a sense that, I mean, I think for that to happen, there would have to be overwhelming support both politically and from the citizens of the UK to want to change, to reverse the outcome of the referendum in June 2016. And I don't get a sense that that's out there now. So, I mean, we still could be facing a hard Brexit next Friday. It seems hard to believe Mm. that that would happen. But I think it's a possibility that that people have to consider. Um, But on the other hand, I think you know, maybe the UK will have to swallow hard on this and admit that they can't get the withdrawal agreement through. They're going to have to participate in the EU elections. They're going to have to give more time to this. And maybe then you're looking at a year or two years down the road. But this is where then other leaders, and you're right to point out the likes of, 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 of Macron in France, and, you know, we're hearing Belgium's against it and other countries are against giving them any more time. Because, and I see this all the time and I go back and forth to the European Parliament, people are absolutely fed up with what is going on in the UK. They can't get on with other legislation. Brexit is domineering the, the political and the legislative process at the moment within the EU. And, of course, people would be absolutely appalled at the idea that this could continue for another year or two. And remember, the the withdrawal agreement is supposed to be the easy part of the Brexit process. That was only supposed to be about just, you know, deciding on the main issues in order then for the transition period to go ahead and for the real wheeling and dealing with the trade agreements to go ahead. So can you imagine? It's been so difficult to get agreement and it's still not there on the withdrawal agreement. What is it going to be like reaching agreement on the likes of fisheries, agriculture, 
tr- you know, all the really difficult trading policies that can take years to negotiate with third countries when the EU itself is negotiating trade agreements. So, like, how long is that process going to take place? Mm. I think the only thing that is certain this morning is uh, that 1,001 days on time is of the essence with just eight days left to go. Karen, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Michael. A pleasure as always. Thank you indeed. Karen Coleman, editor with Europarl Radio, which reports uh, from the European Parliament in Strasbourg and Brussels. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to a cash in transit robbery that took place at 10 o'clock yesterday morning in Drogheda. Local councillor and former guarded detective Richie Culhan is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, What have you heard about this particular incident? Uh, Good morning, Mike. Uh, Yes, at around 10 a.m., two two raiders uh, were waiting at the Bank of Ireland in Loris Street for a cash delivery, which took place. And uh, uh, they approached the uh, security staff um, uh, who were delivering the cash. They were threatened with the iron bars, I'm led to believe. Um, And they grabbed the cash box. Uh, at which point one of them actually fell down, fell down three steps from the, from the entrance to the Lawrence Street Bank. Um, He recovered and got the the, uh, cash box and crossed over the street where they went to uh, the back lanes via the steps there at the side of High Lanes Gallery. Hmm. So that would probably indicate that they had a good knowledge of the town and where they were going. Um, It's believed they were picked up in a a 07 Opel Zafira, uh, which it's like a people carrier. People would uh, understand that. Um, they were picked up there somewhere in the back lanes and subsequently made their way over to the Dale, which is on the on the Marsh Road. Uh, you turn right up the Dale and local people mm-hmm. would be familiar with it. <clears throat> the car was burned out um, at the Dale. Now, I suppose, Carly really would be interested in talking to anyone in the area, whether it was Lawrence Street, um, the back lanes, uh, the North Quay, um, Shop Street, St. Mary's Bridge, Marsh Road and the Dale area and indeed uh, when they went into the Dale and burned the, the car mm. um, there are, I think there are five exits uh, on uh, from the Dale so they had to leave via one of those. One would be onto the, back out onto the Marsh Road uh, where the car entered the Dale. Uh, the second would be onto the Dublin Road via the steps um, which takes you up onto the Dublin Road. The other one would take you onto Mary Street. There are other steps there and then there's the 101 steps, which takes you up to the Sacred Heart School um, at Sunnyside. And, of course, there, is a, there are other steps that will take you subsequently up to St. Mary's School um, on the Bainhall Road there. Um, <clears throat> I suppose Gary also would probably be interested, I'm sure, in, in talking to anyone with dash caps hmm. um, uh, who might have witnessed this car, because I'm sure after a robbery they generally drive pretty erratically and it draws attention to itself. Um, so anyone with dash cams, whether they were uh, members of the public or indeed taxi men in the area, they may have something to offer in relation to this robbery. Uh, <clears throat> am, I, am I right in assuming that they probably weren't the brightest of bank robbers in uh, that there is, uh, it would seem in the face of things, a, a number of flaws in how they went about this. Uh, the car, the getaway car for a start, uh, undoubtedly it was a stolen car, uh, but a, a 2007 people carrier doesn't make for the best of getaway cars, does it? 
No, probably doesn't make for the best of getaway cars, but uh, you know, to, to suggest that I suppose they didn't really need to, to have a car that was very fast. They only were going travelling as far as the Dale, which they had planned. <clears throat> the robbery sounds like it was, uh, you know, very amateurish, to be mm. honest. Um, but to be, wait, uh, wait, to be waiting in the bank to begin with, uh, I presume they're on CCTV there. I'd imagine they are. I, I don't. I don't know, Mike. Mm. But um, I'd imagine that there would be, you know, quite a lot of CCTV in that area, including the CCTV that the guards operate themselves from, uh, from the Garda station. Um, <clears throat> no, it did. Uh, I'd agree with you. It, it sounded very amateurish. Um, and uh, however, it did, you know, suggest that they they had a good local knowledge in relation to where they were going. Um, I suppose the other thing is, I mean, that uh, Opel Zafira had to be somewhere for the last few days since it was stolen. Mm. And um, if anyone had seen that car acting suspiciously, or indeed any Opel Zafira green in colour, a 07 acting suspiciously car, they would be very interested in speaking with them. Mm. Um, it's um, it, I'm led to believe also that Gardaí were actually in Lawrence Street when the call came in. However, that would probably have been two minutes after the robbery went uh was carried out. So they were very, very close to being um, in a position where they could have uh, encountered these uh, these robbers. And uh, it was just, uh, they were very lucky in actual fact to get away kind of thing because, as I said, the, the call there was in Lawrence Street when the call came in. However, they had, at that stage, departed the scene and um, they subsequently made uh, inquiries. And obviously, mm-hmm. uh, they had they had carried out searches in the area. So, um, as I said, mm. just, just two two things. Anyone with dash cams and anyone who had witnessed the robbery or indeed witnessed the car. Um, uh, to pass on that information, yeah. obviously. Yeah, there's a, an assumption that these uh, fellas uh, had mm. been waiting in the bank for the security personnel to come along with uh, the cash in, in transit. Uh, but maybe that is a wrong assumption. Or, or what do you think? Uh, was it opportunistic, perhaps, uh, that they were just there when the money arrived and they decided to avail of the opportunity because uh, I think quite often uh, the movements of uh, these security firms would differ and that they would come at different times of the day so that their movements couldn't be predictable like that. No, I'd imagine the reason there was a certain amount of um, uh, um, study done on this bank and and the times at which uh, money was delivered and the days that they were delivered. I mean, you must remember these criminals have, you know, all the time in the world to carry out this Surveillance, I suppose, on the bank, mm. um, and I don't think it was opportunistic. They knew what they were doing, and um, you know, it was just they were lucky in actual fact that they got away. Mm. Uh, because, as you know, Michael, in a in a built-up area, you know, you, and especially with the traffic the way it is in Drogheda at times, I mean, you can find yourself very easily hemmed in and have no transport to get away from a, mm. a, a situation like that. But anyway, be it as it as it may, um, they did, and uh, they are now you know, seeking for any information in relation to this robbery. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, to all intents and purposes, it is a, a bank robbery, isn't it? I, I, I mean, I'm not sure you'd expect to success, successfully rob a bank with a, a crowbar. Well, you know, I mean, many of these uh, criminals, they do, because some of them, you know, who wouldn't be very organised, uh, they wouldn't have access to firearms, many of them. And uh, as you said, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of an opportunistic thing, mm-hmm. and this looks like it's very amateurish, really. Um, this particular robbery. But, I mean, there are many robberies carried out with um, knives and hatchets and uh, machetes and bars and things like that. And I think the instruction, really, um, for security personnel 
that are carrying out and carrying this cash with them is, mm. um, you know, don't be a hero because, you know, they can get seriously injured with these guys. And generally well, speaking... The, the graveyards are full of heroes, I understand, yeah. Mm-hmm. They are, and many of these people that carry out the robberies are, are basically, they're, they've taken drugs beforehand, which, you know, to give them a little bit of a, a lift. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're very volatile and... Um, uh, you know, it wouldn't be unusual, really, to have a robbery carried out with uh, with a weapon other than a gun. But what will they need to open the cash box <coughs> now that they've successfully escaped with the box and whatever is in it? Undoubtedly, there's a lot of money in it if it's being delivered to a bank. But what do you need to open that? And if you open it without the key or the code or whatever is generally used, uh, is there not a, a marker that destroys the money? Well, yes, and I suppose it depends on, you know, whether or not that uh, box had a marker which destroys the money kind of thing and renders it useless kind of thing. But um, I'm sure there are ways and means around them. I mean, I have heard it suggested, you know, in relation to dealing with uh, boxes that contain these explosive dyes that destroys the money and and how to... uh, you know, get around that, but I mean, I'm not going to discuss that on this on the show here. Okay. Um, yeah. But there are ways and means of, of of dealing with it, I believe. Um, so, you know, I mean, the boxes are basically plastic, and I suppose if you have all the time in the world, you can, you know, get an angle grinder, or you can do whatever you have to do, kind of thing, to get into that box, so you'll have plenty of time. Um, but uh, no, if if the if the obviously if the um, if they don't, and they sound like they're not that professional. Mm. But if they don't know what they're doing, um, the, the the money would probably be rendered useless. Okay, well, as you say, 10 o'clock in uh, the morning, uh, a busy time of the day. A lot of people in a busy part of uh, the town. And if anybody does have information, if anybody saw what happened or if they have dash cam footage or if uh, they have noticed uh, that 2007 Opel Severa in uh, the last few days, a uh, dark green car, uh, that uh, perhaps uh, they'd make that information known to the Gardaí. Richie, thank you indeed for joining us this morning, as always. That's Richie Culhan, who's a, a local Fine Gael councillor in Louth and a former guarded detective. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the last of uh, the budget uh, announcements made in October will be implemented over the course of uh, the next week or, or so. If you're unemployed, uh, you'll have got a, an increase in your dole yesterday or today, as the case may be. Other welfare payments will increase over the course of uh, the next week and a bit. The last of the increases coming on Friday of next week for pensioners and others and and Dempsey communications manager and training facilitator with Senior Line joins us now and I suppose uh, people have uh, been patient waiting for their fiver or thereabouts uh, but uh, good news that it's coming now. That's exactly what I thought Michael it's that unusual thing these days it's a good news story isn't it? Mm, Absolutely Mm -hmm. Uh, but five euro will it make a difference to people? It will. And I've been thinking about all the people, Senior Line and indeed our host organisation, Third Age, uh, works with since I heard the news of its implementation this week. I went first of all, Michael, to a, a Senior Line caller who is a single woman for whom her friends are very important. And over the years, she's found life biting more deeply. And 
she's she was talking to us a little while ago and she was unable to go out and have a cup of coffee with her friends. That sounds, you'd kind of think, well, you'd need to be in dire straits not being able to afford a cup of coffee. But it's getting that bus into town, having the, this person isn't yet on free travel, having the cup of coffee, seeing her friends. And uh, it was uh, that morning out was just beyond what she could afford, making a huge difference in her life that, that she couldn't do that. So, I mean, when you're... When you're looking at every penny, five euro a week will make that difference. You know, mm. it all adds up, doesn't it? Well, it, it does uh, because it's one of uh, the many cuts, I suppose, that people have endured over the years. This is it. And as well as the cuts, there's been all the other stuff we know about, property tax. On the other side, you know, the cost of living has increased in subtle ways, you know. We're mm. coming out of winter now, which is lovely, but again, our call is just sticking to the sea line for a moment. Our callers, you know, they dread winter because it's so cold, it's not nice, but it costs more to live in winter, you know, for all those but the fuel allowance only goes so far. Michael, I've also been thinking about our other programmes and Senior Line and all the programmes of Third Age. We don't talk so much about them, you and I, but they're very, very relevant to this discussion because all our programmes are, are designed to increase the engagement of older people. And I don't know whether you know about our our Leinster programme, which is very operating very much around need, which is the Age Well programme. And it's like Senior Line face-to-face, where we've trained older volunteers to meet older people in their own homes. Mm. These are people who signed up for it and want it. And I was just talking to the AGEWELL manager uh, a few days ago, and she was telling me that the midline assessment of AGEWELL has said that the well-being of older people has come up 90% in terms of getting the weekly visit, the friendship, and it's encouraged them to go out more, and all kinds of good things are happening. So, uh, again, while people don't phone senior line talking about money, ideally, or we don't visit our our, age, our, our old people at home in Mead um, to talk about money, um, because it's really about health and loneliness and all mm. of that. You know, if you've got a few extra coppers in your purse, it does add to your feeling of well-being and some of the choices you have. Well, there's no doubt about it. And I imagine regardless of your age, everybody is the same in that sense. Uh, Anne, uh, the senior line is a service that's available to people uh, that they can ring about almost anything, though, having said yeah. that. And perhaps you'd like to invite people to do that now. Thank you very much. We're senior line. We do really invite you to ring. We last year became we became a free phone line. It's a, a free phone eighteen hundred number, and so it won't cost you a penny for any length of time. Uh, any part of County Mead, we'd love to hear from you. We're open every day of the year from twelve. Uh, sorry, ten, 10 to yes, ten. I'm yes, thinking twelve. Twelve hours, hours a day, ten to ten. Ten, yes. mm. 10 to ten, uh, and we'd love to hear from you. But anything at all, money, mm. uh, anything at all. Okay, listen, and thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager and Training Facilitator with uh, the Senior Line. Now, it is a a most important day for all of us because of the ongoing crisis relating to Brexit. And we'll be talking about if it's possible to reach a deal with the DUP a little bit later on in the programme. But let's hear why it's the fault of the DUP, hardline Brexiteers, Remainers and all of the MPs in the House of Commons. Here's what Theresa May told the British public on television last night. Nearly three years have passed since the public voted 
to leave the European Union. It was the biggest democratic exercise in our country's history. I came to office on a promise to deliver on that verdict. In March 2017, I triggered the Article 50 process for the UK to exit the EU, and Parliament supported it overwhelmingly. Two years on, MPs have been unable to agree on a way to implement the UK's withdrawal. As a result, we will now not leave on time with a deal on the 29th of March. This delay is a matter of great personal regret for me. And of this I am absolutely sure you, the public, have had enough. You're tired of the infighting, you're tired of the political games and the arcane procedural rows, tired of MPs talking about nothing else but Brexit, when you have real concerns about our children's schools, our national health service, knife crime. You want this stage of the Brexit process to be over and done with. I agree. I am on your side. It is now time for MPs to decide. So today I have written to Donald Tusk, the President of the European Council, to request a short extension of Article 50 up to the 30th of June to give MPs the time to make a final choice. Do they want to leave the EU with a deal which delivers on the result of the referendum that takes back control of our money, borders and laws while protecting jobs and our national security? Do they want to leave without a deal? Or do they not want to leave at all, causing potentially irreparable damage to public trust, not just in this generation of politicians, but to our entire democratic process? It is high time we made a decision. So far, Parliament has done everything possible to avoid making a choice. Motion after motion and amendment after amendment has been tabled without Parliament ever deciding what it wants. All MPs have been willing to say is what they do not want. I passionately hope MPs will find a way to back the deal I've negotiated with the EU. A deal that delivers on the result of the referendum and is the very best deal negotiable. And I will continue to work night and day to secure the support of my colleagues, the DUP and others, for this deal. But I am not prepared to delay Brexit any further than the 30th of June. Some argue that I'm making the wrong choice, and I should ask for a longer extension to the end of the year or beyond, to give more time for politicians to argue over the way forward. That would mean asking you to vote in European elections nearly three years after our country decided to leave. What kind of message would that send? And just how bitter and divisive would that election campaign be at a time when the country desperately needs bringing back together? Some have suggested holding a second referendum. I don't believe that's what you want, and it is not what I want. We asked you the question already, and you gave us your answer. Now you want us to get on with it. And that is what I am determined 
to do. Determined, uh, but is it possible? Despite uh, the passion uh, that Mrs May expressed to the people of the United Kingdom in that televised address last night and the passion in how she pleaded with MPs to support a deal, she went on to blame the MPs for putting her and her government in that position and it is quite questionable as to whether she will enjoy the support of MPs, many of them now calling for her resignation. She may not resign yet, but she says that she's not prepared to extend the deal any longer than the end of June. So if that's the only prospect that she's faced with, if the only way that she can secure the UK leaving the EU without crashing out by extending it past the end of June. Does that mean that she will resign? Does it mean that there will be a general election or does it mean that there will be that second referendum that she is so opposed to? We'll be talking about all of that a little bit later on in the programme with Jim Wells of the DUP. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Pat is one of those listeners from Dunleer and he rang in with his thoughts on the latest Brexit developments following Theresa May's speech last night. He believes it's all going to fall flat on its face and the end result will be a no-deal Brexit And if that happens, the UK will crash out of Europe and there'll be a return to a hard border despite what the government on both sides are telling us. There's no way there will not be a border. He received his green card in the post from his insurance company and he says its arrival in the post really brought it home to him the magnitude of the situation. For the last 20 years or so, we've been able to move freely between North and South without security checks and borders to worry about. But that could all be about to change and that makes him so sad. Pat travels into the north several times a week and to think that in a couple of months that journey will be a whole different ball game is scary to think about and he doesn't believe that many people really understand the full extent of how much this will impact on our lives. Mm, well, if he, he's right, uh, we may be understanding the impact in nine days from now, uh, and I don't think uh, it's at odds with what the governments are saying. I think there is full agreement that if uh, the UK crashes out, there will have to be a hard border, yeah. Funny mm-hmm. he mentioned it, because I got something from my insurance company yesterday, so the insurance companies must be just sending out now um, the the documents that are needed. Theresa May says Seamus from Dundalk is clutching at straws. Is she not, Michael? He wants to know. There needs to be a longer extension. This is going to go to the wire and the last thing we want is for the UK to leave with no deal. Could that still happen? He's wondering mm. and he's fearing. Yeah. <laughs> think that that's that's, it's, the, it's still a that's case, the short answer. Yeah, anything mm. can happen. Mm. That's yeah. that's mm. still the case. Jim from Dundalk says that the timing couldn't be more awkward with the European elections in May, and he is wondering what will a three month extension achieve. That if they can't agree a deal now, will three months really make any more difference? Mm. Well, I don't know. Um, that's the $64,000 question, isn't Where, where's it? Where's yeah. that crystal mm. ball you were looking mm. for before, mm. Michael? Mm. John from Drogheda believes that it's time for Theresa May to go. That last night in the speech, she seemed to be blaming everybody else 
uh, for what's going on but herself. But she needs to look at what she's doing and John feels that despite what Theresa May says, there needs to be another referendum. All right, well, let's talk uh, about uh, that speech uh, a little bit more because uh, I think that's what everybody is saying. Well, almost everybody is saying that Theresa May was blaming everybody else, blaming everybody else in the House of Commons for the mess that she is in now. Let's hear what the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, told uh, the BBC this morning about how he interpreted what Mrs May had to say. I think she was expressing extreme frustration with uh, the way this process has been going on. And I think she was also reflecting the fact that people at home are getting very frustrated that the process is going on and on and on and it's not resolving itself and people are worrying about what may or may not happen in the future. Uh, But underneath what she was really saying is that in a hung parliament, MPs have a different responsibility. So in a normal parliament where a government has a majority, it can get its business done with the majority it has, then MPs debate, criticise, do their normal things, come on the Today programme and so on. In a hung parliament, MPs actually have to make decisions because governments can't decide things on their own. And we don't have those very often uh, in our history. But she was really making the point that all of us as MPs, whether in the government or backbenchers or opposition MPs, have a special responsibility because a decision cannot happen without parliament giving it approval. Well, all of that may be true, but at the risk of being rather pompous about this, MPs, just as she is, are elected to represent their constituencies. They have their own consciences as well to obey. Many of them have been doing the best they know how. Perhaps some have been making trouble. Sometimes politicians do do that. But what they, they have seen in this Prime Minister is that at pretty much every stage she has given away to a group of people regarded by some as extremists in the ERG group. She has listened to them. She's done what they wanted to do. Now she's paying the price for that and turning on all the other MPs en bloc. I don't think that's a fair reflection of what's happening. In a hung parliament, what happens is that all MPs, on whichever side of the debate they are, government, opposition, small parties try to maximise the leverage, the extra leverage they have from the fact that the government doesn't have a majority. And what Theresa May is saying... Which is perfectly proper. Yeah, it's perfectly proper, it's perfectly uh, natural that people should want to do that. But what Theresa May is saying is that we actually face a moment of national decision and we can't go forward as a country unless Parliament comes to a consensus... Jeremy Hunt was uh, speaking to Nick Robinson on BBC Radio 4's uh, Today programme. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And let's go back uh, to this question as to whether she can put the same old deal to the House of Commons for a third time 
or a fourth time. As Karen Coleman explained to us uh, this morning, the idea is that now that she's been told that if she can get that deal approved, she can get an extension and that may be the grounds for bringing a somewhat different proposal to the MPs. This is uh, what uh, Jeremy Hunt had to say and it's not altogether clear that it is possible to bring it back to the House. We don't yet know whether we will be able to bring it to Parliament next week, but if we are in the same situation this time next week, um, then uh, only a very limited list of things could happen. Parliament could vote to revoke Article 50, which is cancelling the Brexit process. I think that's highly unlikely. Do you think it's even possible? It's possible, but it's, as I say, I think it's highly unlikely, but that is something that Parliament legally would be able to do. Um, There could be, we don't know there will be, but there could be an EU emergency summit to offer us uh, an extension and we don't know what the length would be, and it could have some very onerous conditions. They could say, for example, we'll give you an extension if you have a second referendum. Again, uh, I think it's very unlikely Parliament would vote for that. And then we have no deal as the legal default uh, on Friday. So the choice that we have now is one of resolving this issue or extreme unpredictability. And, you know, I don't want no deal. Um, I think it would be very difficult to predict what would happen. I happen to be someone who's always thought that no Brexit would be an even worse outcome because of the impact on our democracy. But right now, the choice isn't that. The choice is, do we resolve this or do we have Brexit paralysis? And I think people who worry about the economic impact of no deal also have to remember that Brexit paralysis is having an economic impact. Uh And businesses up and down the country need to know where we stand and they want this resolved one way or another. The extension isn't wise either, is it? According at least to her deputy, David Livington, who said just just, uh, a couple of weeks ago, in the absence of a deal, seeking such a short and critically one-off extension would be downright reckless, completely at odds with the position the House adopted only last night. And here she is doing something that her deputy thinks is downright reckless. Well, John, uh, as a veteran of British politics, uh, you know that a week is a very, very long time. But if it's downright reckless there... You may have been around. You may have been in this studio when Harold Wilson used the phrase a week is a long time in politics. I don't know. But um, but the, uh, the point is that since... David Lidington made those comments. A lot has happened, including rulings by John Burko, the Speaker, that no one could have predicted, including responses from the European Union that no one would have predicted. And the result is we are in a different situation now where we are having to face up to very, very difficult choices. And the fundamental choice that we have now is do we resolve this issue or do we have extreme unpredictability? And I think all of us have to think, what do our constituents want in this situation? The British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, uh, speaking uh, to Nick Robinson uh, this morning on uh, the BBC Radio 4 programme today. A week is a long time in politics, if ever there was a long week. Sure is. Michael and Sean was in touch to say that he see, he feels that there's been nothing but chaos and confusion in the UK Parliament in recent weeks. And on some occasions, it seems that the MPs didn't even know what they were voting for. He says, how can we expect, expect the best from them? Christine phoned in to say that Theresa May is right. We are all tired of Brexit, but it looks like it's still going to drag on and drag on. The UK calling the shots again. Eileen says the DUP should be ashamed of itself. Clearly the party doesn't give a toss about 
Northern Ireland and how it will suffer if there is a hard Brexit. Mm. Uh, we also had uh, an email from Jared from Navin who says that Brexit is taking up all of the politicians' time and he thinks that the EU needs to come down hard on the UK. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what we're watching. <laughs> so if I can, one or two just on the yeah. pensions and the increase for, for pension and welfare pay, payment uh, recipients. Raymond says it's better to get a fiver than to lose a fiver but the only thing is everything else has gone up now as well. Kevin says all utilities have gone up, that the uh, rise will cancel out, be cancelled out by these increases. Mm-hmm. And Anne from Drogheda doesn't know why pensioners had to wait until now to get the increase when it was months ago that the budget was announced. And finally with the text from Casablaney pensioner listens to the show every morning. We never got the five euro promised in the budget. What went wrong? Well, you will be getting it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> That's right. the message. Okay. All right, over the next ten days at yep, least. Indeed, yeah. yeah, or the equivalent of three forty a week over the uh, whatever it is. Uh, seven, eight months, uh, yes, the case may be. Okay. Nine months, maybe. All right, thanks uh, for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's hear about uh, these Brexit negotiations or appeals or how Mrs May is begging for mercy from a DUP perspective. Jim Wells, DUP MLA for South down on the line uh, as uh, the Daily Telegraph puts it today Mrs May is on bended knee to the EU Jim Wells Mike we've we've discussed this issue many many times and I think we're heading towards what could be called high noon uh, the UK government is being placed in a very simple but dreadful situation do we uh, leave Europe next week uh, with no deal or to accept a deal which many people just simply cannot sign up to. And um, uh, there's going to have to be a lot of thought, a lot of deep consideration over the next few days. And the EU have placed Theresa May in a terribly difficult and complex situation. And um, those who are responsible for making a final decision have a huge weight on their shoulders. No, that's not how Mrs May sees it. Mrs May feels she has a, a good deal, a deal that is good for the United Kingdom and that she's being blocked by MPs and uh, the DUP are leading the charge. Well, first of all, Mike, this is a deal that was rejected initially by 230 votes, which is the largest defeat inflicted on a sitting government since the foundation of Parliament. The next vote was the third largest defeat ever inflicted on a sitting government. Now, the reality is that there are so many problems with this deal that many people see it as it being even worse than a hard Brexit. This is not the situation that anybody wanted to be in, but it does show the belligerence of the European Union that they are determined to let the United Kingdom leave, but only with stab wounds in their back, so that other countries like Hungary or Italy, who may be considering leaving, will realise that if they do, it will be such terrible pain. Um, and we've seen the true, I've uh, had a true insight into what the EU are like. It's our, our way or no way. So what does that mean? Uh, is it no way, uh, as far as you're concerned, and are we looking at the return of a hard border in nine days' time? Well, Mike, this is where we get into territory for the first time maybe in the many, many years that you've interviewed me. I might say I don't know. Um, there, 
are so many imponderables. First of all, the Speaker at Westminster has ruled that uh, there can't be a third vote on Theresa May's deal. He said that under a, an act passed mm. even 1604, um, you cannot bring uh, the essentially the same item back before the Commons three times in a row. But now, the so theory that, here is that the grounds for bringing it back has changed in that if there is a vote in favour of the deal, it will allow for an extension. So that changes the game, well, so to speak. Now, that's... Uh, far from certain and the Foreign Secretary has said he's uncertain this morning as to whether it can be brought back to the House. You're absolutely Mike and well done you've been doing a fair bit of reading before this interview Uh, what I would say is that John Burko who is the Speaker in the House of Commons has the final say and from past history he could make the decision one way or he could make another and it can't be challenged. So if he says next week I'm not allowing a vote, a third vote in a deal then we are into totally uncharted territory. Even if he does allow that to happen, and even if the DUP came on board, which, you know, could well not happen, the reality is there's about 29 or 30 Conservative MPs who under no circumstances will ever vote for the People like mm. Peter Bowne, uh, Bill Cash, Boris Johnson, they're never going to vote for it. So it's still lost, in my opinion, unless something dramatic happens. There's a lot of commentators who believe that the DUP will vote for it. The DUP are uh, in still speaking regularly to the government, and there are still absolutely fundamental problems we have with the backstop, and those haven't changed. And if the deal was acceptable a month ago, it's still acceptable, unacceptable, unless we have major changes to the backstop. Because remember, the backstop mm. gives the Irish Republic, your government mm. in County Louth, mm. the complete veto on constitutional change in Northern Ireland that they can. Uh, Leo Farad can, simply by raising his finger, stop us from getting out Mm. of the backstop. That is not acceptable. But the theory here is that if the DUP blocks this deal and causes the United Kingdom to crash out of the European Union and, as a consequence, uh, brings about the return of a hard border on this island, that the DUP will be held politically responsible for that and that you will suffer politically for it and you were afraid to do that. And because of your political interests, you're going to vote in favour of the deal. The difficulty is turning the argument on its head if the DUP were to back an agreement which leads us to be stuck permanently in the backstop with the disastrous consequences that has for our trade with the rest of the United Kingdom and our constitutional position, the DUP will also be condemned by future generations. And that is the great quandary. What everybody should be aiming for is an orderly Brexit, maybe with a technical extension of a few months, uh, with a trade agreement somewhere in the same lines as Canada Plus. That is a sensible way forward for everyone. But because Europe has to make an example of the UK, they're digging their heels in. But remember, Mike, and I think we'll be discussing this again, there is provision for an emergency meeting of the heads of state on Thursday, uh, the day before Brexit's due to happen. And they could then agree to an extension without forcing us to sign up to to uh, May's Brexit agreement. And what would that mean? Because it, it, it seems as though that would be uh, an extension longer than that of uh, the 30th of June, which the Prime Minister doesn't seem able to countenance that a, a, a loan uh, 
accept and seem to be implying that it would lead to her resignation. At least in eight times in Parliament, Theresa May said she wouldn't countenance us leaving after the 29th of March. And the reality is, of course, she's had to break those undertakings. I mean, Mike, I'm not going to be dishonest with you. I am reading every, practically every hour of the day, updates on this situation. And I'm trying to to form a judgment Mm -hmm. of where we're going. It could go any way. The only thing that will remain is that you and I will be discussing this uh, many, many times in the future. I was listening with interest to your, your ad for dating apps uh, just before <laughs> it came on. I thought, you know, that's what we need, a dating app between mm-hmm. Juncker and uh, May, something to bring them together and reach agreement because at the minute uh, the situation mm-hmm. is so cloudy, so unclear. What I'll say to you is we are living through the most dramatic constitutional change in the status of the United Kingdom since 1945. Mm-hmm. This is major stuff and who knows what's going to happen within the next 10 days. Well, what, what the Prime Minister has described as a, a constitutional crisis. Uh, if there is this knife edge uh, and we have an emergency summit on Thursday of next week, the day before the 29th of March, uh, the day before the Brexit deadline, in other words, uh, do you believe uh, that what will be on offer is a longer extension, 21 months, I think, is uh, what most people are, are talking about. And if that is the case, uh, will Theresa May resign? Uh, because, uh, as you say, she said many things in the past and changed her mind. Well, the one thing I would say that even her worst enemies would say that uh, Theresa May has got what we would call up here stickability. She's got perseverance. I mean, I think most people would have long since given up and walked off the stage, given what she has faced over this last sort of three years. So I wouldn't, I would automatically assume that if Theresa May fails to get her agreement through on the third occasion, that she's going to walk away. She just doesn't seem to be that type of person. Mm. Secondly, I don't see a huge queue of people waiting to take her, her, her job, to walk into the lands then and take it. And if the worst comes to the worst and we do leave under a no-deal situation and move into uh, uh, international trade agreements, well, I believe the British economy is strong enough to sustain that. I mean, Mike, what I notice you haven't been broadcasting the fact is that unemployment in the United Kingdom is its lowest since 1975. Mm. We've record inward investment. When did the United uh, Kingdom join the EEC? joined the EU in 1972. Yeah. Mm. So what I'm saying to you is that unemployment, unemployment is a record, and indeed mm. employment in the United Kingdom at 32 million is a record. Tax receipts in so, January were an all-time high. So the economy is strong and able yes, to deal but with the but, 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 you're, but you're talking about returning to pre-EU uh, scenarios uh, and possibly you'll see a return to the unemployment of uh, the 70s uh, that people, some people are old enough uh, to remember. It's possible uh, we won't even get past today. There's a, a chance uh, that the request for an extension will be rejected. France, Spain, Belgium, Italy as well apparently are, are considering vetoing uh, the uh, idea of granting the extension. Well then, then, then Europe has decided we move next Friday to a no-deal Brexit, and that's entirely their responsibility. And remember, under the archaic system that we have, 
in the EU, it only takes one minister to put up his hand and say, I object. If they can't get unanimity, then there is no decision. And that is just the type of government system that we have been under in the European Union mm. for the last 43 years. And, and there's many people saying, if that's how they're going to deal with one of their major constituent members, well, then maybe we're best to get out of it. Uh, you've been promised continuously that the backstop is an insurance policy and that the expectation is that it will never be needed, it will never be used. If the UK crashes out of the EU because of the backstop, how will you feel? If we, if it's a choice between leaving without an agreement or accepting the, the backstop, then it's leave. And that would be the view of the vast majority of the Union's population in Northern Ireland. Because we can see down the line that sort of Damocles in the form of the backstop hanging over us, not for two years, but maybe for 20 years, maybe forever. And the Irish government having the absolute veto on what we do, whether we stay or go, that simply can't happen. Why would any Irish government ever allow us out of the backstop? That's the problem. It has to be either time limited or there has to be some mechanism to enable the, U- the UK unilaterally to leave it. And the problem is neither the Irish or the EU really understand why we mm. are so against the, that concept of a backstop. And what will the DUP response be if uh, there's uh, support for Mrs May's deal? It may go back to the House uh, next Tuesday. It may even go for a fourth vote uh, on Thursday of uh, next week, the day before the Brexit deadline. Well, we're Democrats, um, Mike, and we will we will argue very strongly against the backstop, uh, and as will as will many Conservatives and one or two Member. And you know we will have to accept uh, if the decision goes against us. Though I, I don't see that happening because I know quite a few of the individuals mm. in the European Research Group, and I cannot, in any circumstances, see the the, the Peter Bones or, or the Bill Cashes or the, the Boris Johnson. Mm. I can't see them voting for the agreement under any circumstances. Even if the DUP became cheerleaders for it, they'll not be voting for it. And that still means that the arithmetic at Westminster would indicate that she will lose by about 35 votes. So if it's academic, whether it's 35 or 135, she won't be able to go back to Brussels on Thursday and say, I've got agreement. All right. Uh, You you know a few of them in the DUP uh, as well. And uh, how will you respond personally if, uh, let's say, Nigel Dodds or Sammy Wilson or Geoffrey Donaldson vote in favour of it? Um, I would want to see why they voted in favour. I would be very shocked if they did. I would be very concerned if that happened. But equally, I know that there's a tremendous burden on the shoulders of those individuals at Westminster. They're the ones who can look at all of the information, all of the statistics, and come to a rational decision. I have to say, Mike, and you want to hear this, but there's huge support amongst unionists in Northern Ireland for the way that the DUP MPs have handled themselves over this last few months. And so far they've called it absolutely right. And I would be strongly believe mm-hmm. they'll call it right next week. But I wouldn't want to be on... And do a U-turn. You know, there would have to be something on the table, I would suggest, before there could possibly be any change of our view on the backstop. But equally, I wouldn't want to have the burden that will be on their shoulders next week because it's going to be a tremendously difficult period. They've done well up to now, 
and they deserve our support as they go into what clearly is the final round of this very difficult situation. Mm. The other thing, Mike, you've got to remember is that this is only the agreement to leave. We mm. still have to negotiate our relationship with Europe, and that's a two-year process. And there'll be many, many other battles ahead in terms of developing that. So unfortunately, you you will remain the top commentator in County Louth. <laughs> I'll remain a, a, an obscure backbencher, and we'll be discussing this for many, many months to come, no matter what happens. Okay, well, we'll leave it on that very optimistic note. <laughs> thank you indeed uh, for joining us and uh, cheering us all up this morning. Uh, thank that, you, Mike. Thank you indeed. Uh, Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for Southdown. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Daily Mail's front page uh, today focuses on smartphones and young people using the internet, which in itself is uh, not unusual. The headline is uh, that there's proof uh, that having a phone makes teens unhappy. The story is uh, about uh, the sad state of happiness in the US and the role of digital media, a report which has uh, been commissioned by the United Nations and as an addition to the 2019 World Happiness Report. It finds that exercise, sleep and face-to-face meetings with friends brings happiness to adolescents whilst the use of smartphones to listen to music and browse the internet brings the most unhappiness and has led to an increase in depression. Let's talk about this with Fianna Fáil TD Thomas Byrne uh, who's Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on education and a TD for Me East. and uh, very good morning to you and thanks for joining morning, us here on the programme this morning. Uh, you're questioning uh, coincidentally it would seem why the government isn't following up on on its policy of consulting with parents through schools on how the schools are using smartphones or children are using smartphones in schools more like? Well, first of all, I mean, I I did a bit of research on this issue of smartphones. I mean, I haven't looked at the happiness research, but I've done research on the issue of whether smartphones add people's education or, or don't add to them. And the only research, and there's not that much research, but the only research that one can find is that smartphones don't help uh, your education uh, and that's the proof. Um, There was a study done by the LSE. They looked at educational attainment in schools where smartphones were allowed and they see that the educational attainment is actually below uh, the attainment in schools where they're not allowed. Um, And there is no research anywhere that I can find uh, that shows a a benefit to them. So what we originally proposed in Fianna Fáil was that we wouldn't allow smart devices in schools up to junior cert level. And we felt that that was a good boundary because when you do get to leaving cert level, I mean, first of all, a lot of kids mm. when they do the leaving cert are actually adults. They're over 18 by the time they do the leaving cert. And it wasn't really feasible. And sometimes they are used for learning in that context, uh, particularly in the leaving cert. Um, but a number of parents were on to me because when, when, when Fianna Fáil announced that policy proposal, Minister Bruton then kind of rushed out for the teachers' conferences uh, circulars. Uh, where he instructed schools to consult with parents uh, on smartphone usage and promised that there would be legislation, in fact, in relation to that um, very, very soon. This over a year ago. Um, and basically what I what I did then recently was I put a dog question down just to see how the, these consultations were going on from the department's point of view. And of course, the department has no information whatsoever uh, about what's happening with the consultations. And I, I was very sceptical and dubious about the consultations at the time because obviously, first of all, they had no legal effect. Uh, secondly, this was another administrative burden on schools, something the government was getting them to do, really to get headlines during the teachers' conferences, and there were a lot of headlines on that. And, and thirdly, there were no resources given to schools. 
um, uh, in relation to, to this consultation and the extra work that they would have to do. Uh, and I spoke to a number of parents and they told me they hadn't been consulted and I spoke to a number of um, senior personnel in, in, on the management side of schools uh, nationally and they felt that their attitude was that schools always consulted on these types of issues and the mm. circle didn't change anything. In other words, I don't think very little has, I think very little has happened. In two and a half it. years. Yeah, well, well, the two things. The, the legislation was promised two and a half years ago. It's still not written. We haven't had it before the doll at all. But the, there was a circular kind of done a year ago on what would basically bring in the legislation on an administrative basis, just by the uh, really a letter from the minister telling schools to do this. Uh, and nothing has happened on that. Like there's been no follow up by the departments. There's been it really hasn't happened in practice. And there are concerns. But the biggest concern I have is that the research shows that the attainment, education attainments are lower if you use smartphones at school or smart devices. That that's there. Um, but also, um, there's a huge cost to this as well. Like I mean, why, why is around, that though? Uh, I mean, uh, is that too simplistic a question to answer? Because uh, undoubtedly, uh, there can be many ways of looking at that. If you have a, a smartphone, it can. Uh, impact on how you uh, advance uh, in education because of how you're using the smartphone and maybe for other reasons. But if you use it appropriately, it can be a great tool. And by stopping it, it it may be the equivalent, but it may be the equivalent of padlocking the library, would it not? Uh, No. Um, The problem I have with that proposition, Michael, is I can't find research that shows me that that's the case. Okay, so you're saying, you're making that proposition, that's fair enough, and, mm. and you would think that. I don't blame you for saying that, I don't blame anyone for thinking that. But when I go looking for research on it, I can't find it. Mm. And if someone could point me to that research, I'd love to read it. But there, there is research to the, uh, on, on the opposite side, uh, which shows that the, 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 the level of attainment is lower where they're allowed. Now, there are schools in our, in our area where they're allowed, there are schools where they're not allowed. Um, and one of the complaints parents have, apart from the whole issue of educational attainment, which one or two parents were concerned about, uh, is the cost. There's a huge cost in certain schools where, where iPads are, are, are the mainstay of education. And what concerns parents as well is that while schools are probably making better efforts now uh, to try and lock down the iPads that it's only educational material, mm. kids always find a way around these things. And that's um, that's just the way it happens. I mean, sure, that, 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 that's the story from, from time immemorial. The, the, you know, younger people always, you know, develop, things and, and move things along much more quickly and that's what's happening. So I have a concern about them, uh, it's cost, it's education attainment, but also that the you know, when, when the government makes announcements and it makes a lot of announcements yesterday on the gambling regulator, or oh, it'll be another year and a half, yeah. with this announcement on the parent and stu- student uh, charter which is the, the, the consultation with schools announced late 2016 there were a number of announcements actually of that legislation since, and then this circular as well a year ago to make headlines for the teachers conferences and has been no follow-up whatsoever. Uh, and I think that that's a recurrent point with this government, that the things were announced uh, and there's li- literally no follow-up. And that's, that's what I think is my job as education spokesperson mm. to highlight. We've, put our, we've, we've laid our cards on, on, on the deck here. We said, you know, we, we don't think smartphones should be in schools up to junior cert. After that, it's at the discretion of schools. And schools, many schools will decide not to have them, but some schools will will have them after that. But but, but in the uh, circumstances, if it was possible to achieve a circumstance whereby the smartphone or uh, the iPad could only be used uh, for educational research purposes, do you not see that there would be yeah, a benefit for it? There, there may be, but I mean, we're not talking about it. What I'm talking about is personal devices as such that, 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 that you know, 
of course we want ICT investment mm. in schools. We want computer rooms in schools and probably computers in classes as well. That's critical. But what I'm talking about really here is the individual use of smartphones uh, on, a, on, on a normal basis or mm. even on a, on a normal educational basis. Um, we don't think... Uh, I mean, sorry, the research shows that they don't help. In fact, they do the opposite. Um, so, so, so that's what I'm, I'm at. I'm not against computers. We want, we want more than we want our children highly educated in computer skills and smartphone skills. And indeed, they, they, they become educated. But there is just a lot of research which shows that this does not help. In, in your child's education and that's what concerns me that and that's because concern. they're listening to music they're on Facebook or well, they're watching pornography or whatever else they use them but for but I can, don't know but, actually but, but all but, I know is that the, when they did mm, the research it showed mm, up that if they were if the school they didn't say what, the, what else they were looking at it could be that they were looking at nothing else Mike. Mm, uh, but that this didn't help educational attainment that the traditional uh, teaching uh, book learning uh, writing doing your maths work, working out the problems uh, that's that's it could be that as well, like that. That just simply wasn't being done. It doesn't. It may well be that many of these schools had very successful mm. blocks uh, on other applications. But that, but, but that, 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 that's the key to the success. I mean, to block Snapchat or whatever it is that young people are being distracted by. Well, I think most schools would, would aim for that. And what parents are telling me is that they're not always successful. Uh, my kids aren't at secondary yet, but I mean, so, so they don't have uh, smartphones in school mm. uh, as part of their education. But they certainly have computers. And as I said, we need more investment in that. But uh, the point is, Michael, is that nobody really knows this because there's so little research done. And we don't know, are the educational attainments lower because they're looking at other things? That's what I would assume, that the distraction effect is huge. Mm. But we don't know whether it's just simply the fact that this is not a, that this is an inferior method of education. Um, and uh, that's, that's the problem. And we don't want to put any of our children at risk. We, we don't know the reasons. We just know that educational attainments are lower. Um, when, 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 when smartphones are allowed. That's, that's what the research shows. And until someone can point me to contrary uh, research, I, I certainly won't be changing my view. But I mean, I'm certainly, mm. it's something I've been looking at. And the policy that we put forward is research and evidence-based. It's not, it's not something that we think, you know, a cheap headline isn't going to get our children anywhere, really. And that's what happened okay. uh, with, with, let, with, with, with the parent institute. Let, 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 let me uh, try and introduce a cheap headline if uh, I can. Uh, and it may be nothing more than a, a cheap headline, but uh, should legislators not lead by example if children are distracted by smartphones in schools because of them using the phones for something other than what they're there for? Should politicians not be using their smartphones in the doll or in the Shannon, as the case may be? Yeah, I think I think a good case can be made for that, Michael. And I certainly use mine uh, from time to time, my iPad or, or my phone. Uh, generally, uh, is replying to emails or corresponding, or or even at times researching for the debate. But yes, I think I think you make a valid point, and I think there's there's no doubt there's a certain uh, there's an issue there that you raise. And I think certainly in terms of debates, I think we are better off listening to each other, speaking to each other. Uh, and trying to move on, but of course we are and bombarded and, and rightly so uh, uh, by correspondence from constituents that we have to get back to, we have to address. And sometimes during debates, Michael, I have to say, people tweet you certain points of information or certain uh, issues maybe that you haven't thought about, certain maybe you were wrong at a point, whatever, and a constituent says, well, by the way, what about this? So it can be helpful. But I think uh, what I'm doing in terms of education, Michael, is based on the research that's there. Uh, and it's based on nothing else um, except that we want to see our children reach their But it, it is the same point though isn't it? Uh, I mean there isn't research I- in terms of how these uh, phones or devices are, are used uh, in the debates uh, that take place in the doll or elsewhere but people are using them all the time and it follows that people are using them in classrooms. 
Uh, well, I don't think it follows that people are using them in classrooms. I think the school environment is different. And the school environment, what I'm saying up to age, well, I'm not saying age 15, but approximately up to junior cert level, we're saying is different. And what I've said is that I wouldn't propose to ban them after that. Uh, I would leave that as a matter of choice for individual schools. Uh, because as people become adults, there are, you know, they obviously have to be accepted as adults. So there's a difference between adults and children. Uh, but also that there are ways, you know, if... Certainly, if you look at some of the curriculums there in the new curriculum coming in, say, for example, in, in, in the politics subjects at the leaving cert level, that requires a huge amount of research. It's not just about learning from the books. It's about finding out what's going on in society and politics, reading extracts of um, you know, important treatises on, on politics and, and, and sociology and social affairs. So there is a, a research element to that. Where does a research element to something? Um, I, think, I think that that's that's what we've drawn the line and I think the same can be said for politicians sometimes if someone makes a point on the other side that maybe hits you say I didn't know that or what are they talking about you look it up they say either correct or actually they're completely wrong so there's a a time and a place for everything Michael and I think there is a place for smart devices and what I'm saying is some schools want them we're saying after junior cert that's a matter for the the choice of the schools but what we're saying is up to that level uh, we see the research as pointing in only one direction Okay. It's an interesting uh, thing for all of us to think about uh, and we leave oh, it there absolutely. on that thought for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Thank you very much indeed. Fianna Fáil TD for Meath East. Uh, Thomas Byrne is uh, his party spokesperson on education and skills. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about recognising invaluable work appropriately with uh, the Right Honourable Jared Crockwell or Independent Senator Sir Jared Crockwell. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning, Lord Crockwell. You seem to have covered all of the titles there. <laughs> Best I could come up with. Uh, you're, you are. You, I don't think. I don't think you're nominating yourself for such a, a title. Not as yet, anyway. But you are suggesting that such titles would be bestowed upon some Irish unsung heroes. Um, not quite, Michael. The Godamanuktron is um, a title. Gu would be the. Um, I suppose the suffix that would go. With Anybody, any of the 12 that would be awarded it. Our constitution specifically banned titles of any sort. So we're not really talking about a title, but what we are talking about is an honours list uh, to be published every year in January. Uh, this was Fergal Quinn's idea before he retired from the Shannon. And the idea is that we would have 12 recipients each year uh, and hopefully none from the political or entertainment world. We're talking about the unsung heroes of community. Uh, and that uh, an honour would be bestowed on them, but not a title. Absolutely. No, no, we do it. There is, uh, under no circumstances would there, would there be a title of any sort, nor would it grant any privileges, other than the fact that it would recognise people like, I mean, if you want to, to mm. take examples, Captain Corliss, uh, Father Peter McVerry, mm. uh, people like that who have gone above and beyond uh, or, uh, to serve their communities. And even ones that I mentioned there are high-profile people. I'm not necessarily um, aiming this at high-profile people, but at people who serve their communities. Uh, because we see people of the year awards, we see the various other awards every year, and you've got political people, and you've got music industry people, theatrical people, all being honoured on an annual basis. And, you know, there are people in your community today, Michael, who go beyond uh, what any of us in, in public life do. 
to serve their communities. And I think it's those people I'm aiming at. And, and how is it uh, you would propose uh, they'd be selected? Uh, well, no, Fergal's bill, Fergal uh, Quinn's bill, uh, sets aside a commission under the chairmanship of the Secretary General of the Onuktron, uh, uh, um, uh, or the Office of Onuktron, and then he draws in people from IBEC and from various other um, industry-based, I suppose, organisations. I'm not sure, and I'm open to advice on uh, where we would draw the commission from. Certainly we need a chairman, and the Secretary-General uh, of the Oris would seem to be the ideal person. But uh, apart from that, I'm not so sure that we want um, industry kings. We want people who understand uh, human endeavour. So maybe the likes of Father McMurray would be an ideal member of the Commission. Maybe uh, so, and maybe not, because some would say that he's a political activist and a, a thorn in uh, the government's side. And by God, we need thorns inside of government <laughs> okay. and politics at the moment. Mm. But Fergal Quinn's bill goes back uh, to 2015, I, I think. So this is a, an idea that has uh, been going around for a, a number of years. I think there's been a, an argument over as to whether it is constitutional or not. Yeah, no, Fergal's bill is absolutely constitutional. It avoids the pitfalls that would if into the unconstitutional area. I notice on, on social media has been a frenzy over the last few days of uh, Sir Gerard or Sir yes, I'm sure. Lord mm. Crockwell mm. Uh, seeking titles, and that's far from where we want to go. Uh, God knows uh, the granting of titles, if we're to like, see hundreds of thousands of euros changing hands in smoky, dark rooms late at night, uh, it's just not where I want to go, really. But 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 it would be a formal recognition. It would be a, a recognition of, of achievements of sort by the state, uh, and that would be recognised through a, a medal, which would be worn on formal occasions, uh, as well as a lapel button. That's correct. The closest I can get to the type of thing I'm talking about is you frequently see in the honours list in the UK, the MBE, which entitles the person to nothing other than recognition for service. And you would find, for example, a sister in a hospital ward or um, um, a member of the police force or um, a community activist, um, a youth leader, that type of individual uh, come in under the MBE, MBE um, uh, uh, list every year. And uh, strong tongue here. That's really where where I'm aiming this at. Uh, this all arises from a letter uh, Fergal wrote to the Irish Times um, calling for somebody to take up the mantle that he had let go. And I would be quite happy to do that. And I believe most of my group would be supportive of it. Um, the important thing is that we don't wander into the area of titles and all of the nonsense mm-hmm. that goes with that. Okay, uh, and that there is a, a consensus uh, across uh, across uh, the political divide. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need across the political divide, which will be difficult enough because we're not offering anything to the politicians uh, because it would be specifically excluding people from political life. We get enough recognition for what we do. 
Okay. We leave there for the moment. Jared Crockwell, GU, or in time to be GU. <laughs> Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Much appreciated. Independent Senator Jared Crockwell there. Now, just uh, before we go today, uh, I want to, to finish up uh, by taking a look at the front pages of uh, the papers in the UK on this very important of Brexit days. So the Guardian may don't blame me for Brexit crisis. Blame MPs. Defiant PM tells public, I am on your side as infuriated backbenchers call on her to resign. It's not my fault. May's deluded defiance is the headline in the Daily Mirror, which talks about an arrogant PM refusing to take any responsibility for her Brexit shambles. This is the verdict of the British press. Power to the people. Furious PM, I'm on your side. Not warring MPs. Uh, That's uh, the Sun's take on it. Brexit blame game from I. Prime Minister accuses Parliament of thwarting the people and says applying for Brexit extension is a matter of great personal regret. Remain and leave. Supporting MPs condemn toxic televised address to nation as pressure builds on May to quit the summer. EU admits short delay is possible provided Commons backs PM. Irish Premier urges Brussels to help UK avoid accidental no-deal exit. In a highly personal appeal to the public, the Daily Express says May expresses great regret over failure to deliver Brexit on time and warns bickering MPs to get on with it. PM tells tired Britain, I'm on your side. The Daily Mail, May in dramatic TV plea to salvage Brexit deal. She warns MPs, Britain's had enough. Corbyn flounces out of crunch talks and EU's latest ultimatum means we're on a no-deal knife edge. The Financial Times may please with rival parties to save deal as EU issues ultimatum and May on bended knee to the EU is the Daily Telegraph front page headline. We leave it on that note and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. michael at lmfm.ie